Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we are going to explore our love of music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums of all time. We have a bonus deep dive episode for you today where we invited a Van Halen expert to talk to us about the band and the album 1984. So today's special guest is Greg Renoff. He's the author of Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal, and the author of Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Greg grew up in New Jersey and graduated from Rutgers University and went on to earn his PhD in history from Brandeis. You may know from past shows that I used to live in a town called Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, which is a suburb of Tulsa. Greg has lived in Tulsa for many years and is married to a woman from, you guessed it, Broken Arrow. Welcome to the Matrix. Anyway, without further ado, let's get to our interview with Greg. So today we're joined by Greg Renoff, uh, author of Van Halen Rising, and I am super excited because we have been talking about 1984 for the last week or so. We've been listening to 1984 on repeat to to get it, let it seep into our brains. So really excited to have Greg join us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, so super excited. Uh, I didn't get all the way through uh, your book, but first three chapters were really riveting. So uh, I can't wait to finish up. Appreciate that. Yeah, it's... Uh... Uh, I won't spoil it for you. No spoilers. <laughs> oh man, spoilers! That's awesome. <laughs> All right, so so Greg, we wanted to maybe get started with what drew you to Van Halen. So yeah, we all figured out we all grew up in New Jersey. Um, so in 1984, I was living in New Jersey, and uh, I was in sophomore. I take it back. So it would have been. Um, let me see if I get this right. It would have been. The yeah the um, my sophomore year in high school and uh, you know I had, had some I had some uh, I had an uncle who introduced me to rock music so I'd heard a little bit of Cream a little bit of the Stones and some other stuff but really like MTV had started to take over my my world you know, like a lot of us I'm sure like that was you know the kind of the way you could you could uh, get new music but I didn't have a car right so I was like fighting with my parents for the stereo but they usually would let me like whatever watch one TV in the basement. Um, and I saw Van Halen's jump and uh, I, I always say like, I'm almost positive I had heard Pretty Woman the previous year and like, you know, I didn't know who it was probably or whatever, but, you know, I knew the song. I remember the song had, uh, was on the radio a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, there was I just I just love the video jump and I ended up scalping a, a, a ticket from a kid at school. Um, kind of. Yeah, it, it basically like. He knew like I was I had the worst poker face in the world. Like he knew I was like desperate to go to the show. And he, you know, he didn't, I don't remember what exactly happened. It was something like his brother had gotten him a ticket. And he, you know, he really didn't like Van Halen all that much, but his brother was like, I'm going to get you a ticket. And so he just wanted to sell it. So he sold me the ticket and I went and um, yeah, that was it. I saw Van Halen at the Meadowlands. That was April 2nd, 1984. And it just sort of changed my life. I mean, I was just kind of like blown away by the spectacle and just the way that David Lee Roth controlled the crowd. And, um, you know, Eddie Van Halen's guitar playing, of course, I'd already started to hack around a guitar a little bit. I wasn't very good. Obviously, I'm still not very good. I say obviously, but that's just <laughs> never got very good at guitar. Um, but that was the other thing that was really fascinating to me to see that. And then I was just sort of, you know, immediately a massive, massive fan of Van Halen. And that's really where it started for me. And, um, you know, I, through the years, 
I remained a, a fan. I, as I mentioned, I went to, before we came in and started taping, I, I went to Rutgers and then went on to grad school and eventually got a PhD in history. Uh, I taught college. I was a college professor and I just, you know, always had the same, you know, musical interests. I liked a lot of different bands from the seventies and eighties with Van Halen was always one of my top, you know, really my top band. And, um, that was sort of led the, led the groundwork for writing, uh, writing about Van Halen. It was not a career plan or anything it was, you know, it was actually probably a bad career move for what I was doing at the time, which being a college professor, but you know, it just was something I was passionate about and that's how it started for me. You mentioned that that show, was that your first show of any kind or had you been to other concerts? You know, I had been to, you know, the show I actually saw, which at the time, I remember at the time I was like, kind of like, Oh, whatever. Uh, so um, I saw the Go-Go's and, Block of Seagulls at the at Madison Square Garden in 1982, and my so my sister was like was younger than me, um, and my she was a big Go Go's fan, and my uncle had gotten tickets. I don't remember he worked in the city and he'd gotten some tickets, and uh, there was enough tickets for all of us to go. And it was sort of like, you know, if my mom is going and my cousins are going, like it was basically like, you, you know, I, I probably could have like not gone, but it would have been like, it would have been like annoyed at me, like you're going. And I, I wasn't like super resistant to going, but I wasn't like enthused to go, but it was actually, it was actually, I'm very, very glad I went. And, uh, you know, I talked to, to Kathy Valentine on Twitter about it. And I talked about how I remember very distinctly, we were in the upper deck and the upper deck of Madison Garden was actually shaky. You could feel it move because all of these girls, mostly girls were dancing to the Go-Go's. And uh, she actually wrote about that in her book. I don't know if they could see it or they were, told later that they could they, they massive garden upper level was shaking which was you know kind of like awe-inspiring it's like you're like you're like this shouldn't be you know uh, okay. this thing shouldn't be like you should be able to feel the motion from this um but you know that was a really a great eye-opener for um kind of the power of rock music and you know i i didn't you know i like the go-go's i didn't suddenly start you know becoming a big go-go's fan uh necessarily but i was always you know kind of like some of their songs and thought it was cool it was a cool experience and um yeah so that was my first big 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 concert was to see sold out go-go's master guard and then you know i guess about two years later i saw van halen i don't think i saw any other concerts in between i really don't think i mean it would have been i'm 99 sure i didn't see anything else in between that that i can remember or think of yeah we're going to do the go-go's next season so um that album that first album is a really good rock record you know you think of them as the go-go's and a girl band but they rocked that that beauty and the beat album is awesome yeah. man yeah it was it was really you know um one thing I that stands out of my mind thinking back on the two shows is like the Go-Go's had almost no stage show, right? They basically had, you know, I, I'd have to go look at pictures of their set, but it was basically like drums, guitar. I'm not, I don't even think they had a backdrop. I don't remember. They might have, but I don't remember that they did. Um, they may have sold six seats behind the stage. Um, you know, but of course, compared to Van Halen, which was like the, the biggest thing you've ever seen in your life, is very, very telling how different the two um, approaches to sort of staging the show um, were. Um, but yeah, great, great. Uh, great songs and uh yeah it was it was like their moment right they were on the cover of rolling stone like either that year or the next year it was definitely their moment big 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 show well you know so you're talking about that stage show and that really brings me to your book and it was just fascinating talking when you when you're talking about the uh red ball jet and <laughs> that stage presence that they right. had from the beginning can you tell us you know talk to us a little bit about that yeah so you know i ended up doing this um, starting on what became a book. I didn't have a plan to do a book when I started it. I was just trying to write a little bit about Van Halen for fun, actually. And I ended up um, yeah, diving deep into a lot of the stuff. I realized that no one had really written about it. If you went on Wikipedia or really anything, like any of the Van Halen 
you know, there were some bios that were done of Eddie in the 80s and some other stuff. Like, no one really ever covered other than just sort of, like, taking interviews that they did in, like, Circus Magazine and, like, taking two or three sentences out of that and making it into, like, two or three pages in a book. Um, and so, yeah, I started talking to all these people in and around Pasadena. Um, and I ended up talking to three of the guys actually were here in Red Ball Chat with Dave. And that was sort of like, you know, I sort of realized that that was sort of the Rosetta Stone for understanding Van Halen in a lot of ways. And that's not to, to discredit or minimize the Van Halen Brothers contribution, obviously. But when you start to see like um, what Roth was trying to do before he joined Van Halen with these sensational things he wanted to try to do, um, you know, that there was the, the naked flyer, which I had reproduced in the book, which was like, you know, like a little local sensation for a couple of days in the newspaper. They, they dressed up naked and like pretend like they were naked and like they posted them around town and passed it in and the parks and rec department got mad and canceled their, their quote unquote, their big concert they were going to do. And, um, you know, all the stuff that Ross was trying to get those guys to do in Red Ball Jet, you know, again, these are, this is a, a high school band, which I thought was really amazing too, to kind of think back what it was like to be in high school. You're like so worried about your appearance and being cool and like not looking stupid. And like Ross was trying to get those guys to do basically like Motown step, like, you know, they're trying to get them to like shooby doo behind him while he did his show, you know, and stuff. And like, um, I started to realize like, yeah, if you look at the Hopper Teacher video, like, of course, like this was always, <laughs> this was always <laughs> Ross vision yeah, yeah. of what music should be like entertainment like visually entertaining kind of harkening back to the stuff he liked kind of a you know wink and the nod to the the 50s and 60s music he grew up on while still doing something different um and so yeah like all of that prehistory that i got super interested in um it just got bigger and bigger in terms of what i was trying to uh to lay and then really what i was focused on as a historian was trying to explain um you know how that band developed and how it changed rather than just sort of these you know these guys got together and they they wrote some songs and they made an album and try to understand like you know what those guys brought to um the, the van halen brothers particularly and what dave brought to the different sides of the band and how they sort of like the friction between those guys in some sort of ways really musically if, if nothing else like, i don't even mean the personality i just mean the musical differences like dave was much more into motown and sax and sort of you know james brown and in a lot of you know, he liked hard rock, but he also had this more diverse musical taste. And the brothers were a much more, you know, straight line, cream, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. Um, how that all came and sort of generated the Van Halen sound, which you all, which you all know um, from the first album on, especially that sort of like pop flavored hard rock, heavy metal that Van Halen became um, focused on. So that was, yeah, that was the beginning with the Red Ball Jet stuff. I really uh, enjoyed, I just enjoyed writing about because I don't think anyone, no one really knew anything about the band. And, um, you know, again, I always try to reinforce to people. It was like, it was just a high school band, but it, to me, it was like, yes, this is what Dave wanted. He had a drive and he wanted to do this and he wanted to do something. He wanted to do quote unquote, spectacular performances again on a smaller scale, obviously in Pasadena, but even before he ever like even thought about playing the form or anything, he wanted, he wanted it to be bigger than life. The, the other piece that I thought was crazy in the beat at the start of your book was with the the, the Russian piano teacher. The, uh -huh. the fact that, you know, he, he had, the, you know, they both had this like, you know, crazy talented piano teacher because the, the, their dad was so, mm -hmm. you know, committed to them learning piano. Yeah. Um, it is interesting, you know, that in around 20, I guess around 2012 or so when different kind of truth came out, there's a, um, an interview that was done at Roth's house of Ed, Al, and Dave. And Dave is actually interviewing the brothers um, more than really anything else. And he, he, he was a promoted different kind of truth. And he asked them the questions. And the, neither of the Van Halen brothers looked very comfortable with the, like, they just still like, 
you know, it's just not their thing. Like they're not ready to like sit around and BS. Like they just, they're just not into that. Right. That's not their thing. Um, but he asked about the piano teacher. One of the things that Alex said, I thought was really interesting. He said, like, we used to like the piano teacher, eventually like the, the father for whatever, maybe they couldn't afford it or, or whatever. It was just too much of a hassle. But see, like going down to St. San Pedro, which is like, I don't know LA's geography super well, but I know well to say that was like way, way, way south from yeah. Pasadena, like way down by the, by, by Long Beach, like way down. And Alex said that the teacher obviously thought they were so good. He offered to teach them for free. He was basically like, look, if you're spending too much money on gas. Again, I don't know what the, what the reasoning was behind maybe the lesson sort of wrapping up. Cause maybe he, maybe he couldn't come to Pasadena anymore. I don't know. Cause it sounded like he used to come to the house at some point. Um, you know, the, the teacher was like, I'll teach them for free, you know, and sort of, you start to realize that, um, you know, there was, there was a real, as we all know, a real musical talent there and that they had this very, very talented teacher. And I always think that too, you know, um, it may have, maybe have been, they just couldn't afford it. Right. That the, that the teacher was like, I understand the family doesn't have enough money to afford it, but I'm going to let them take lessons for free. So, yeah, I mean, I think the fact that, um, you know, that with all the stuff that Ed went on to do with, with keyboards, but both of the brothers really had a compositional, you know, they had a very, very well um, attuned compositional mentality, even from little being little kids, really from like, you know, doing this stuff. I didn't realize that until I actually read that in your book and I'm like, oh, okay. Then I kind of connected the dots on all of the, you know, heavy synthesizer and, and the composition components of what got brought into 1984. I'm like, all right, <laughs> I can see it background wise. It makes, right. it makes sense. Right. Yeah. Right. The interesting thing that you uh, explain is that when Ed brings in those synth and uh, keyboards, Dave was kind of against it. You know, mm -hmm. he, he said that you're a guitar hero. What are you doing uh, bringing in the keyboards and the synthesizers? Right. Right. So it's really explains it, you know, really puts it all together when you uh, realize how uh, well-trained they were in piano. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there was a picture that was kicking around uh, Twitter. Um, I was posted by somebody in the, um, after I died, one of a family member had posted it like it, Alex is playing the piano. Like Alex is what again, whatever he's playing, it's like at a family party in the seventies or early eighties. And like, it looks like, um, uh, the Van Halen's father is there and they're, you know, it's like, yeah, these guys grew up playing this stuff. And I think, yeah, getting back to the stuff with Dave, um, and Ted Templeman that sort of factors into that as well. I mean, and there was a, there was definitely, um, a concern that I think of, uh, among both Dave and Ted that Ed was, um, Ed was you know, basically a guitar hero for lack of a better term. And like, if you, why would you, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's like having the best home run hitter in baseball. And he's like, I'm going to bunt a whole bunch more, much more. And you're like, why would you yeah. bunt? You're the best yeah. home run hitter in baseball. And again, that doesn't mean you're not a great bunter or you, you couldn't do it, or you shouldn't be able to express your bunting side <laughs> at a time. But like, you know, why would, again, you know, again, like, and I understand why though, uh, obviously on the flip side, we understand why that would be extremely irritating to, to Eddie who had this sort of like side of him that he wanted to express and, and had these songs we were writing that were, geared towards keyboards but um yeah that's that's uh you know but you know the thing is it's like even from like stuff from fair morning um ed had talked about how he wrote like hear about it later and some other stuff like cradle of rock he wrote this stuff on he was writing stuff on keyboards that he then translated it to guitar way before um you know 1984 showed up and the other thing i always like to, to indicate which i think most people are vaguely I mean, you guys, most people like fans are kind of vaguely aware of like, you're like, oh, yeah, there's keyboards on Fiddle Rock. Oh, yeah, there's keyboards on, um, you know, Diver Down. There's keyboards. Um, there's Dancing in the Streets. There's actually, interestingly enough, there's actually a mix of, uh, which you can find on YouTube. There was a, like a, 
AM radio mix of Secrets that has keyboards on it. Really? Like you, it's, if you listen on YouTube, yeah, I was like a, you know, so there's keyboards on Secrets. There was a couple songs there, and actually, um, even weirder is like after the the, um, I guess because the um, Guitar Hero multitrack got leaked out at some point, you know, for the guitar, the, you can actually hear there were actually keyboards on. So this is love. Like again, not a lot. Like there was like a like a, a like a electric piano like mixed way way down. You know, so it's like, you know, he had been playing keyboards on these albums for 1980, 1981, 1982. And so 1984 comes around, he's basically like, oh yeah, okay, like I've done it like sort of on these other albums and like we did it a little bit on Diver Down, but I really want to bring it to the forefront. You know, and I'm sure Ed was like, well, what's the big deal?
um, got them on Warner Brothers. And so he he does did six albums with them. He produced six albums and then co-produced uh, Foreign Lawful Chronology in 1991. So, yeah, the whole Ted Templeman relationship was that basically Ted was the guy after a whole host of record company executives for different labels including including Herb Alpert, uh, guys from Mercury Records. I mean, like a lot of the big labels basically saw Van Halen, knew about Van Halen, were like, yeah, they're dinosaurs. It's just a rehash of Deep Purple. This stuff's over. We're, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, punk rock was, was kind of coming, New Wave was kind of coming up. Um, you know, the, the Eagles were still big. There was sort of this sense that this was like, you know, over, right? Black Sabbath was about broken up. Deep Purple had broken up. Mountain was gone. They were like, these guys are just redoing that. And so Ted saw something different in Van Halen. Um, so yeah, he, um, you know, he was, I think at first, definitely somebody who they, um, took advice from kind of like without question, like they're basically like, you know, and Ted's a, a guy, I think who generally gave good musical advice, but basically he was really interested, you know, picking songs and like th thinking about shaping their sound and getting them on, on record the way they wanted. And certainly by the time that Diver Down and 1984 roll around, there's definitely some um, displeasure, especially among Ed, with the, some of the decisions that Ted was making. Uh, Diver Down was done very quickly, and there was a lot of, uh, I would say, I don't want to say corners had to be cut, but basically some things that had to be done in terms of doing cover songs to try to get the album done quickly. And uh, by the time 1984 rolled around, Ed had wanted to surely take more control over the over the recording process. And how he did that was he built his own studio and then asked Ted Templeman if they could do 1984 up at, at studio in his backyard called 5150 and all the other records had basically been done at Sunset Sound for the most part which is obviously a landmark you know big Hollywood recording studio um, and Ted agreed and that's where things kind of went kind of sideways between them there was definitely a lot of craziness that went on in the making of that record I mean Ted um, Ted you know saw it through to the end but there was you know there was some stuff that was um you know, less than tranquil, I would say there was definitely some tension and there was some, um, you know, some sense, I mean, I think among the band, particularly Ed, and I think Ted understands this as well, that they were basically ready to like, to take more, like basically like, yeah, we, we want more control over the production process, particularly Ed wants, like, I want more say how things sound. I don't want to definitely just defer, defer to you because you're the producer. And so, um, yeah, so he did the six albums with them. Obviously all of them were wildly successful and then did the four unlawful carnal knowledge record. He came in, halfway through the process on that one with Andy Johns to basically help them pick the songs, produce Sammy's vocals, and then kind of get it over the finish line. That project was kind of like, um, there was, I don't know, it was just, it was sort of lumbering along and not really getting to, again, getting to the finish line. Ted was particularly good at that, of kind of going, okay, here are the songs, here's what we're going to do, and getting the album out the door to the record stores. Yeah, that's can be the problem, I guess, with the artist being the producer. Uh, you're seeking perfection instead of just, you know, trying to get, the product done and and shipped yeah i mean i think that's the uh that's the real tension there was that you have somebody like ted templeman who had a track record as a big successful producer with the doobie brothers being a lot a lot of hit records and sold you know millions of records for warner brothers and so there is this um initial sense like we should listen to this guy right but it, it you know it, it's not like Ted had their had didn't have their best interest in mind. He just had a different viewpoint about the band, about their music. And of course, you know, when you're, when you're the composer and you ha have a recording studio now, and you after you know you're writing this music, mostly Ed is writing this music. You you know, at some point you're going, no, I, I you know, 
I want the keyboard songs on the album. Like, you know, Ted, Ted did not like I'll wait. Roth didn't like it either. Um, they, you know, Ted, as he said in the book, like agreed to work, obviously agreed to work on it. It wasn't like he was like saying, actually not, we're not putting on the record, but he, he didn't, he didn't love the song. Like if he was up to him, he would have said, I don't really love this song. It's too much of a departure for what I think Van Halen is, you know? And so that was part of the, you know, part of the thing. And you understand why maybe Ed Van Halen saw that as, I don't know how to say, I don't want to say insulting, but was like pissed off about that. Like basically I like this song. You're telling me like, you don't like this song all that much. And that pisses me off because I wrote it, you know? So um, that was some of the stuff that ended up, you know, going on. But, you know, I think at the end, you know, you kind of look at whatever happened with 1984 and you think, you know, it was, it was whatever the ingredients of all the different people who were involved in it, one way or the other, it was wildly, wildly, wildly successful um, as a, as an album. So one of the things that Tony and I talk about, because, you know, as we're going through albums, we for, one of the first things we look at is how long is the album? How many tracks and how long is it? And, right. you know, 33 minutes it's it's a tight album. I mean, it's not, you know, by any stretch, you know, some something that is super long or anything. It's it's a tight album. So, any thoughts on how they got to that? I mean, because I think they had some of the songs written for fifty one fifty already, and and it was mm-hmm. like a, a choosing point. So, how did they get to the length of the album effectively? Yeah, I think that's one of the things too that um, there are some. Uh, interviews that Ed did after the release of 1984, where he talked about how Ted was getting mad because they were writing, kept writing more songs. There were, there were like um, some of the stuff that ended up right exactly on wildlife. Um, you know, the song that eventually became blood and fire on a different kind of truth that was called Ripley that came out with the wildlife. And there was, um, there was um, probably, I think I should remember it. I think it was probably good enough if I'm remembering correctly. And, and maybe was, was, um, was the that idea was kicking around too, and, and Ted, you know, Ted, Ted was very focused on deadlines. I mean, that was the other thing too. It was like they wanted to take their time to do this record, and actually, um, it was supposed to be out according to the memo that has been whatever. You know, someone sold some uh, memo, you know, Warner Brothers memos from 1984 era, 1983 era, and there was actually a memo saying it was going to be out in the fall, basically, or like before, you know, like late fall for Christmas, and the album was late, and so like you know that was the other thing too is like. Ted had to wear two hats, which is interesting for these records. You know, if you hire, if you're a band and you hire, like, I don't know, uh, uh, um, who would be the classic example? Like, this, like Tom Worman, who maybe was like, a, at some point was an independent producer. I think he was an independent producer. Um, you know, and uh, Mutt Lang would be the classic one. He, you know, he's not working for the record company, really. He's, you know, he's kind of a guy who's like, obviously, I deal with the record company, I deal with the band. Ted was an executive of Warner Brothers Records, so like you know that was the other thing. So he was like, he wasn't Butch Vig. He was he, he's the guy who who's actually the record company guy. Exactly right. So he's like obviously like you know he wants the best for his artist, but I, I you know when you you look at it, you could also fairly or unfairly look at it with, with a suspicious eye to be like, yeah, you want what's best for the record company, you don't want what's the best for us. So that was you know I think Ted typically did a good job of walking in line with that with his artist, but that was definitely something where I think. Warner Brothers wanted the record sooner rather than later. And those guys kept like delaying and delaying meeting Ed. And they just kept like taking longer and longer, um, you know, just crafting the songs. But I, I, in terms of the length of the record, I mean, I think that was always sort of the goal was to do around those guys really tried to do what was around 30 minutes of music um, on the records. And, um, you know, that was, you know, five on one side, five in the other. And that was kind of their, their, their formula. But um, there was more, yeah, there was more music. I know that, that Ed had said that Ted was pissed off because, he was like, let's finish what we have. Like, stop 
you know, messing around with these other songs. Pencils down. Fake right now. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Pencils down. Time's up. Right. So speaking of the album, are there any, um, you know, particular tracks that come to mind for you that are uh, really close or personal to you or have uh, particularly interesting stories uh, from 1984? You know, um, what I always think about when I think about 1984 is that before I had the album, I bought the 45 and I don't remember like why I bought the 45 and not the album. Cause I loved the So I loved, I was like, I love Van Halen. So I, I, you know, maybe I didn't have enough money when I went to the, um, to the record store or I don't, I don't remember, but I bought the 45 and I remember I took it home and I played it and I played jump over and over and over and over again, but I flipped it over. And on the back side is the B side, which of course is the song that's least likely to be a single in theory, right? That the B side of the, of the, first single is oftentimes like the least commercial song in the record. And I heard this song called house of pain and the guitar, um, the riff and that he's playing and just how powerful it was, the drums and the, the guitar sound and Ross vocals and the, just the, especially the solos. I mean, the outro solos that was like, for me that like, just sort of like set my entire brain on fire um, and made me like absolutely love Van Halen even more. So, you know, that that's the last song on the second side of, of the 1984 record. That's the last song. And uh, that was kind of like the deal sealer for me. I was like, wow, like, you know, the keyboards were cool and everything, but like, you know, to hear like that type of, because again, if I heard Pretty Woman and, um, you know, the guitar doesn't sound like that on Pretty Woman, obviously Eddie's guitar, but that song is so wild and so uh, just explosive and, uh, you know, pyrotechnical and his, his playing, that really was something that really caught my ear. So that's what I remember most of all. I mean, I love, you know, I love the whole lot my goes for song by song, but that, this the house of pain is always the song i was kind of like yeah that was the one that kind of it sealed the deal for me 100 percent on van halen i was like already like you know loving it but then i realized kind of like oh this is more like what most van halen is like i guess i kind of like understood like house of pain is more like in the in the um the genre of what van halen typically had done over their albums which is which is guitar driven hard rock from uh an album perspective do you gravitate towards earlier do you like across the board I'm, i'm just curious as to what like when you think van halen what what album do you think of? Yeah, I mean, so for me, I'm a I'm a guy who you know Roth was my gateway drug. The Van Halen, Roth Van Halen was a gateway drug into Van Halen, so I'm always like a Roth guy first. But you know, I I saw I say, I say obviously, but yeah, I mean, I saw Van Halen with with Hagar many more times than I saw them with Roth. Um, you know, and I liked Fifty One Fifty when it came out. I I, I gotta say, and I still would say this from today and as i said it when i was there i wasn't like crazy about like you know the keyboard the keyboard songs i mean i definitely like like summer nights and stuff like that it wasn't like i was like you know like turned off totally but like it was just you know i was not super into the to the ballad stuff um you know whatever yeah all right i, I wore out 5150 in the car and listened to those songs but you know love comes walking and stuff like that was just never like a you know was never a thing that i was like oh this is really in sync with what i like about van halen um so you know for me i you know my my you know i i, I always say this half tongue in cheek i mean you know but it's true it's like my favorite probably my favorite van halen album is like diver down in terms of like what i represents for van halen again it doesn't mean i don't like love 94 and it's like all like the same thing i mean really like you know like gun to my head i can say something different tomorrow um but i love you know i really loved about van halen was just how um you know how they could play almost anything they would play uh, you know do a big band song on diver down they would do a, a dance in the street which is almost like a disco song and, and for me that really kind of harkened back to their their early days 
what I wrote about in Van Halen Rising when they were doing cover songs and they would play like all sorts of, of really outside the box type of of um, music. They'd play James Brown, they'd play Black Sabbath, they'd play, um, you know, these pop hits that, you know, that uh, Cool in the Gang, like, all, you know, all, all this stuff that was way outside of what hard rock should be. And that's sort of what I really... Um, like you know later on i mean i think those guys tried to do that to some extent they did you know they did um they did little feet uh a political blues and on that's a that's the bonus track on oua one two and you know it just wasn't for me it just wasn't as um i don't know what the word is it wasn't just as as, as engrossing for me i mean i did i did last thing i'll say i mean like for me the album that really was like probably my favorite of the Hagar era is uh OU812 it's probably my favorite which a lot of people don't love but but yeah another question that kind of just at the split with where David split off and you've got obviously the Van Halen from 1984 to 5150 but you then you've also got David Lee with Edom and Smile and Skyscraper how do you think of those like if you were to are you as big a fan of some of those David Lee albums and and you know how, how do you think they kind of stand up next to some of the Van Halen Van Halen albums at the time. So I never listened to Skyscraper. I really like. Really? I was just, yeah. I mean, I tell you, I was really turned off by um, just like Paradise. I was just like, this is like, for me, it was like worse than, <laughs> you know, actually, it's like, it was like more <laughs> annoying to me than like, much more annoying to me for whatever reason than, uh, than some of the, the Hagar ballad stuff. And again, like, you know, whatever, you know, if it like came on the radio, I, well, I probably would turn it off to tell you the truth. I mean, I watched the video when it came out, but I was just like, you know, I the Eat em and Smile. I mean, here's the thing, like the Eat em and Smile. I saw that tour twice in New Jersey. That was sort of like peak high school for me in terms of like getting crazy at a concert. And it was just the album I thought was fantastic. I mean, I actually. It was a great album. You know, yeah. I think it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like interesting. I think I don't think that either Eat em and Smile or 5150 have, um, you know, maybe aged as well as some of the other their earlier Van Halen albums. But I do think like in terms of like holding up, I do definitely think that Eat Him and Smile sounds less, much, much less dated and much like, you know, sort of like agreeable when it goes through than 5150 does with just the whole sound of the album. Um, I thought that, again, it sort of was right in sync of what, what for me, early Van Halen was. Um, the songs weren't as good. I mean, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's a hundred percent, undebatable to say that you know that basically the the songs that the van halen songs in general across the first six van halen albums are just stronger than they are anything that was on really on eat em and smile but like you know uh elephant gun yankee rose even like you know cover song like i'm easy that's life all that stuff sort of like fit for me with like again it was like sort of like an updated diver down in some way to me um and i found that you know to me that was a lot more palatable but, you know, I, you know, I always say like, it was like the, one of the worst days of my life was when I watched Farm Aid, you know, and I was like, it's true. <laughs> you know, cause there were like stories in Rolling Stone about like David Lee Ross quitting Van Halen and the rumors that Hagar's in and like, you know, this was always like delayed, right? This was always like, like, you know, the news in Rolling Stone came out six weeks after the reporter heard it or something, but like, and then like you find like, it was almost like, your, it was like your dad was at the door with the suitcases. He's like, I know your mom and I have been talking about divorce. You didn't believe it, but I'm leaving you know, I'm out the door. I mean, I'm serious. It was like, I was like, that's it. It's over. Roth, Roth, you know, Roth Van Halen's over. I mean, I just, it was it. And so, you know, that was the deal. But um, yeah, I mean, I actually like, um, I, I much, actually, I like um, Little Ain't Enough. 
which came out in, in 91. That was the one he did with Bob Rock with um, Dave did as a solo album. I really liked that one better than I liked. I mean, I almost never, I mean, never listen to Skyscraper. I just sort of actually, uh, yeah, I mean, it just, I just don't like what it sounds like. I mean, I just think it's, you know, I, in terms of like, and again, in terms of like 1988 is like, oh, you ate one too versus Skyscraper. For me, there was like no contest. I'm like, every time I'm picking, oh, you ate one too. And it's not even like a debate in my mind. You guys are getting all my hot takes tonight. I hope we're, I hope uh, we're. We, we love the we hot, love takes, hot so. takes. Uh, I oh, have some really. Out, breaking news tomorrow. Greg Renoff doesn't like Skyscraper. Oh, our last podcast was on uh, Led Zeppelin 4, uh, and we had quite an interesting uh, hot take from Tony on on, uh, <laughs> on Led Zeppelin. I'm glad that you mentioned it. Stairway because... to heaven suck. <laughs> no, but something that you uh, wrote in uh, Van Halen Rising was exactly what I talk about on why I don't like uh, uh, the prog rock or Led Zeppelin. And, uh, and I'm quoting you. You said it didn't have uh, the lengthy uh self-indulgent jams or the lumbering doomy dirges and that's exactly yeah. what i yeah. hate about that music yeah yeah he yeah. went it, off in a tirade well, of the battle of evermore I mean, so it was <laughs> good for you man good for you if bonham was alive you would have punched her right in the face bloody <laughs> yank <laughs> uh but good for you yeah i mean i think like that's that, that you mean look one of the the key takeaways on on the Van Halen book, hopefully, is like that Van Halen took all that heavy stuff from the seventies, like the Sabbath and the black, you know, the purple, like that sort of like car solos and the screams and whatever that sort of thing that got people said about hard rock, and they like basically cut off all the fat, like they basically made these three minute pop songs, right? So instead of having like you know, look, I love Deep Purple, you know, but you know, instead of having to listen to six minutes of Highway Star, you've got like, you know, two minutes and 30 seconds of like, you know, I'm the one or something like that, it just blew your doors off. But it was like, onto the next song, onto the next song. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they just, they just eliminated. And that was a lot of that had to do with Roth. I mean, a lot of that had to do with Templeman, the Templeman, I would really urge people to go on YouTube and listen to the Gene Simmons demo, which was done in late 1976, some in Los Angeles, and some in New York, Electric Lady. And then listen to what Ted Templeman did with Van Halen, with the Van Halen demo, which is also on YouTube. You can hear it April 77. Compare them, right? A lot of that has to do with, with Ted Templeman's, like basically working with those guys at Van Halen, talking to them about how to, how to basically better arrange their songs, to clean up their arrangements and basically tighten things up. It's, it's like night and day. It doesn't mean that the Gene Simmons demo doesn't have appeal or the Gene is like, you know, didn't, wasn't smart to, to, try to record Van Halen or try to get them an album deal. I mean, all credit to Gene for that, but like, you know, he, he, he somehow missed, like there's overdubs on the Van, on the Van, uh, Gene Simmons demo. There's no overdubs on the Van Halen demo. Cause that's what Ted saw. It was just like, let these guys just play, let the three guys instrumentalists play and let Roth do his thing over the top. And then Eddie just solo his ass off. And like, it's all, that's all you need. You don't need to like have 20 guitar overdubs and you don't need to have seven minute songs. He's like, get rid of all that, get rid of all that stuff. Um, it's really interesting, especially yeah, to hear between those the demos and then of course what what ends up with the album, the one that's done in later in seventy seven that comes out in seventy eight. Maybe just uh, one or two last things from from a where sure the eighty four album stands in as an importance in music in general. Um, you know, as a historian, I mean, mm -hmm. how do you see eighty four impacting rock music, pop music? I mean, it, what? tentacles do you see kind of playing out yeah i mean i think i think for um 
for Van Halen, just generally, I mean, I think that's what really kind of kind of catapults Van Halen into becoming into their second um, era of of success. I mean, I think one of the things that really was interesting is like it's um, is that when 1984 comes out and it's so big, it sort of like put enormous pressure on those guys that they have a new singer. It's like, is it going to bomb or something like that? But they had like this, obviously, this incredible awareness from mtv from jump they basically like van halen had sort of become like a a next level like madonna or something like that it was like a next level roth had kind of done his own thing too but van halen sort of reached that stratosphere of like springsteen van halen like all they sort of like brought themselves to that next level of band um success the other thing i would say is that you know i really think it's interesting if you listen to stuff like like you know one of the things i always think about is like judith priest turbo it's just a classic example of like an album that was like a lot of keyboards that came out after 1984. And it's like, they were, you know, it was like keyboards became much more in terms of like hard rock. They became much more like forward in production after that. Um, you know, not for every, every band and some bands, you know, but there was, there was like, you know, uh, I talk about it in the back of Van Halen rising. There was, there were just a whole host of bands like except and some of these other bands that were like, obviously like not as successful. I mean, just successful on a different sort of level, but like not as like, successful in terms of like American marketplace domination, like, but they were like all like kind of taking cues from Van Halen, like, Oh, you know, we should sort of like imitate Van Halen. Um, you know, but, but for me too, it's like, it, it, I think in terms of history, it, it certainly cements Ross reputation as a, as a, um, a superstar. I mean, that was really what made Ross a superstar was 1984, but also I think most importantly kind of, made it absolutely undeniable that Eddie Van Halen was more than just a great guitar player. You know, that he had written these songs. He wrote Jump, he wrote I'll Wait and How for Teacher and all these. Just basically there's like four or five songs on that album that are, you know, absolutely, you know, obviously classics that and and to have that level of success that transcended all the other albums, I mean, maybe arguably except for the first album in nineteen eighty four and knowing that Eddie wrote those songs, you know, and in, in different sorts of um, approaches as well in terms of the keyboards. I think that sort of cements his reputation as more like, and he was just a guitar hero, which kind of brings the conversation full circle, right? Yeah, he was, you know, he was more than a guitar, guitar hero. He was a just, you know, he was this incredible um, innovator on guitar with all the different stuff he did in the album with Top Jimmy and like all the stuff that's really kind of out there. But um, to be able to write those songs, um, you know, in a studio in his backyard and to um, make Van Halen a household name, that's that really for me that's why 1984 is so important because it you know it i don't think he ever surpassed it i mean i don't think he ever surpassed it musically in the in the years that followed again it's not like i'm not saying like there aren't great songs on all the van halen records of a van halen fan but i don't think he ever in terms of the rest of his career ever surpassed 1984 it's like you know did zeppelin ever surpass zeppelin 4 no they never really did right they never did it was sort of like this is the career builder right here um it makes them absolute mega stars but you know presence is not as good as you know, in most people's mind, like, you know, into the outdoor, these albums are not as important as, uh, as 1984. All right. So I think we've hit on all of the Van Halen stuff. Greg, is there anything specific that you'd like to promote or anything you, you want to mention to our, our listeners? Sure. Um, you know, my books are available on Amazon. I appreciate you guys reaching out and talk to me about my books. Um, anyone wants to sign a book, you can, uh, there's a link in my bio on Twitter. I, I, you know, I'm happy to personalize books and ship to books to people. Um, yeah, I have an article, I have an interview, which uh, is coming out in Tape Op Magazine, which is a, a, a recording industry magazine, maybe a little different type of form, forum for me, but I am um, i won't spoil it. It's going to come out. It's interesting. It's with um, someone I um, really admire a lot, and that's going to come out in a 
probably in the next couple of weeks. And then uh, hopefully have another book coming at some point soon. I'm not ready to say what it is, but that's the, that's the plan. Uh, COVID was, was quite a, quite an epic year and had some other life happen. So, but um open to get another book out and yeah, I appreciate people. Look, I'm really glad you guys are interested in like, <laughs> it's like, I'm happy to talk to Van Halen with any, any time, you know, it's just great. So I appreciate it. I love the conversation. I appreciate you guys reaching out. Oh, awesome. Where, where can people find you on social media? Yeah. I'm, I, probably, you know, I'm on, I'm on Instagram, but probably the best place is on Twitter at Greg Renoff at G-R-E-G-R-E-N-O-F-F. That's where I do most of my, my Van Halen tweeting, you know, uh, or Van Halen social media stuff. So yeah. I love the content you put out on Twitter. So I, I I'm a follower. I, I, that's, Bless you know, you. I, I absolutely love your content. So <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, you know, it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a band that is, uh, sadly a little bit, you know, it's sort of receding in the, in the background of life with, with a lot of people, but it's been fun and I enjoy it. And yeah, I definitely always will sort of honor the legacy of, uh, the whole band, Eddie and the whole thing. So yeah, it's been fun. Thank you. Tony, any, any last, uh, thoughts or questions? No, just looking forward to finishing Tony, the books. Are you, are you Thank you. And are you going to hate Dublin Four tomorrow just as much <laughs> as you did today? I need to know. Is the, is the hate going to grow? Um, no, it can't grow. I think I really topped out uh, last week when we recorded. So I've, I've got it. We're stretching in our next episode. So we were originally going to do uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers next, Blood, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. And I, I convinced him. Uh, we're going to do De La Soul next. So we're going to do Three three Feet High and Rising next. So super excited to talk that. It just got re-released, which I didn't quite understand like why it was like buried. Oh, so, so many issues with world of... clear, clearing the samples, the record company. Oh, the samples, had, right, of course, right. Yeah, have, having an issue. It was buried. It was lot, lots of stuff, so. Okay. All right. You guys keep fighting the good fight. Get these albums out and keep, keep crashing that prog rock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Greg, it was great. Support. Great talking to you today. Thank hey, you so much for joining us. I enjoyed it. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. It was very fun. Have a great night, you guys. Okay. Yeah. You too. Yeah. Bye. Bye.